of time and space. Everywhere and anywhere, every star that ever was. Where do you want to start? One day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Right, quick, get the engine running in case she comes back. <laughs> we have somehow survived the Dalek invasion of Earth. It will take humanity many, many decades to recover from what the Daleks have done to our beloved homeworld, but um, but uh, we've we've got to be off because of um, thing, and um, uh, and besides, there might be someone out there that needs rescuing. Let's find out, shall we? I'm Ian, and I'm Mark, and welcome to All of Time and Space. This time out, we're going to be looking at the rescue. So just to get you up to speed, I've got the blurb from the Target book by Ian Marta, and it goes like this. From his one previous visit, the Doctor remembers the inhabitants of the planet Dido as gentle, peace-loving people. But when he returns, things have changed dramatically. It seems that the Didoi have brutally massacred the crew of the crashed spaceliner Astra. Even now, they are threatening the lives of the sole survivors, Bennett and the orphan girl Vicky. Why have the Daidoi apparently turned against their peaceful natures? Can Bennett and Vicky survive until the rescue ship from Earth arrives? And who is the mysterious Coquillian? Well, let's find out, shall we? Let's go to a trailer, and when we come back, we'll be joined by our friend Dwayne. Planet Dido to rescue ship. Planet Dido to rescue ship. Come in, please. Over. Watch out for Coquillian. Excellent! Yes, Excellent! Well, I'll be right here, boy! Ian! Keep away! You destroyed a whole planet? You're insane! Vicky! No, don't! Doctor! They're pushing me towards the end! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! And welcome back. And I'm very pleased to say we're joined by Dwayne Bunny from the Sirens of Audio podcast. Hi, Dwayne. G'day. How you going? Nice to be here. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. It's um, it's good to be a part of something televisual instead of uh, instead of audio for a change. Yeah, because you are for the uninitiated, you are the audiophiles, audiophile. Uh well. That's that's what I call myself, but we'll see if the if I can repeat it enough to make it a reality. <laughs> so if you haven't heard Dwayne's voice before, he is from a fantastic podcast called The Sirens of Audio, and they focus on the world's a big finish, and uh, it's a really great show. So you, if you haven't checked it out yet, make sure you subscribe and listen because it's really worth checking out. So before we get into what we're here to discuss. 
Ian, I think it's time for... Oh, it's time for You Know What. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this week, Duane, I have been authorised to use the Mind Probe. Oh, no. Not the Mind Probe. That's very ah, authentic. That was perfect. He knows his five doctors. Oh, God, that was good. That was better than I do it. <laughs> That's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Right, Dwayne, we have uh, five simple questions for you this week. Um, and actually, it's it's uh, it's a lot more simple than usual because um, I, I couldn't really think of any clever ideas. So it's a, it's a fill-in-the-blank quiz this week. I've got five clues. In each answer, there is one word blanked out. I want to know... What is the blank? Are you ready to play? I am ready. My hand's on the buzzer. Okay, great. I've never heard it called that before, but we'll go with it. (laughs) Question one. This is a song by the Rolling Stones, and it's called Emotional Blank. What is the blank? Uh, Would it be Rescue? Correct, for one point. Oh, he's good. We move on to question two. It's a film choice. And the film is Free Willy 3, The Blank. What is The Blank? Uh, now, this could be a tough one, but I'm going to go with uh, my second choice. That is The Rescue. He's gone with The Rescue. The Rescue is correct for two points. Oh, oh two for two. Oh, question three. What I, is going oh, on? I, I can feel the pressure and I'm not even the one facing the mind probe, so good luck to you, mate. Question three. This is a song by the Irish God Botherists and Tax Evaders U2. It's called Love Blank Me. What is the blank? Uh, love the Fly Me? Is that right? actually can i change that let's go with rescue (laughs) it is rescue that's three for three back to back to film now for question four a very tough one this you may not even have seen it in fact that's how tough it is the seven dwarfs to the blank seven dwarfs to the blank no, I, I haven't seen that one, but just in case, I'm going to go with Seven Dwarves uh, to the rescue, perhaps? Oh, he's done it again. I don't believe this. Okay, well, that's four, but you, you, you'll definitely not get this one. Final question. This is a song by Madonna. I want you to think about Madonna. The song is called Blank Me. Oh, heck. Um, <laughs> it's not what you're thinking. It's not that one, Dwayne. That's absolute oh. filth. Okay. All right. I won't say that then. Would it be? Uh, would it be? Rescue me. Oh, Mark. I'm sorry. I've let you down. He's got five out of five. He has passed. That is incredible. The mind probe. Oh, big round yeah. of applause. Dwayne, congratulations. You've won the quiz. Five out of five. 
What do I win? What do I win? Well, you've avoided being tossed into the time lash. Oh. I feel like I should have got one wrong now. I mean, unless you unless you wanted to be tossed into the time lash. Well, who doesn't want to be tossed in the time lash? I mean, tossed into the time lash. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Madonna was against it when I asked her, but, um, you know, early days. Oh, someone, someone rescue me now. Where is this going? <laughs> yeah, shall we, shall we move on? Yeah, so anyway, guys, what, uh, what story are we talking about this week? Uh, the name escapes me. Uh, is it, oh, no, it's the rescue. Hey! That's the one. Okay, so this we're now on to uh, story three of season two. So this is our introduction to the new companion. So we've had to say farewell to Susan. And I know, Ian, you are personally gutted about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sad that she's gone. And we get introduced to the new companion who's called Vicky. I mean, she had... Numerous names in the uh, the writing of this story, including Tanny, which I'm not entirely sure about, and well, there were a few others as well, weren't there? And unusually, apart from the new companions, only really one major guest star, who's Ray Barrett, who is Bennett, who's an Australian, Dwayne, from your neck of the woods. Absolutely. The Australians uh, can, can carry whole episodes of Doctor Who on their own. <laughs> yeah. I did a little bit of research on him, and he had done a fair bit of TV in the UK and Australia. He was probably best known for things like Emergency Ward 10 and the Troubleshooters, but he was also a voice actor, so he did quite a lot of stuff for Jerry Anderson. So he was in Stingray, but it's probably best known for... Uh, his voice is in Thunderbirds. He was John Tracy and The Hood, who's the bad guy in uh, wow. Thunderbirds. So he got around a bit. Well, I never. And it, another interesting fact uh, about Emergency Ward 10, I think, was there was another Australian actor who was prominent in that, I think, uh, Bud Tingwell, mm -hmm. or he might have called himself Charles Tingwell at the time. But he played the dad uh -huh. in the first season of Cat Weasel. So he was a prominent Australian actor too which I'm, I'm surprised he never got into into Doctor Who he may have left the UK in the 60s but yeah those yeah uh, they did seem to have a pretty small pool of actors to choose from in the 60s didn't they mm. or it appears that way anyway yeah they did an interesting thing about Ray Barrett was that he he died in a place called Southport which is the north end of the the Gold Coast where I lived for mm -hmm. a few years so he died only oh, about half an hour from where I lived um, oh, which is, uh, Australia of, is massive. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is quite massive. Uh, I can assure you of that. Considering the number of people that live there. <laughs> yeah, but, and being being involved with uh, the Doctor Who Club of Australia as well, I remember we tried mm. to get Ray Barrett to appear at some conventions as well, and he was like like Gay Waterhouse, who appeared in invasion of time he was a very resistant to having anything to do with doctor who fandom i i have no idea why ah, but um ooh, yeah we tried to approach him a few times to to have something uh, to make an appearance uh for the club but he never mm -hmm. he never agreed to do it unfortunately oh that's a shame so when did you first see the rescue Dwayne? what was your first experience of watching this was would this be back in the the 90s or would it be uh, more recent than that 
Oh no, it was it was back in the nineties. It was before it was released on video. I was around in Phantom when all those VHS copies were flying all over the place. Ah, uh, yeah. And but a, a copy had had reached me from I think there was a time in the early nineties uh, when there was a station called uh, BSB. Was it? It was a satellite station. Yeah. Yes, that's that right. Was, that's right. Um, yeah. And and. They were playing a few episodes. I think the Time Meddler, I saw that for the first time. And The Rescue mm-hmm. was another one of those ones that had been cut specifically to be shown on that weekend. I think they had a Doctor Who weekend that John Nathan Turner was hosting. And and The Rescue was yeah. one of those. So I, I always saw that version from there where the, the last few seconds was cut off the cliffhanger where the, where the TARDIS fell uh, and sort of led into the Romans. They'd cut it off. Uh, at the end there so mm. I'd seen it then I can't remember what year that was it was must have been the early 90s I'm sure if um, I mean I think that was 91 wasn't it that weekend oh you got a good memory in well I I, I, I was talking about 1991 this morning and um, remembering I didn't have Sky and it was it was quite tricky to <laughs> to not be part of that because at the time that felt like the the future of Doctor Who was going to be you know, repeats on satellite, which was better than nothing, but I didn't have access to it, so um, mm-hmm. it all felt a bit sad, which is why I turned to The New Adventures, which ah. also began in 91, nerd fans. <laughs> yeah, so Mark, when did you first see uh, The Rescue? Well, uh, carrying on from Dwayne's story about BSB, they unfortunately kind of went down the pan because... Another Australian came into the fray, um, Mr. Murdoch, and uh, launched Sky TV in the UK, and that pretty much did for BSB. So uh, they had a channel called UK Gold, and they acquired the rights to show Old Doctor Who, and I think I remember seeing it on that. So it would have been 90s, but I forget what year. Wow. Um, What about yourself? Uh, about Is this another uh, one you're new to? Yeah, about ten o'clock this morning. I watched it. <laughs> I was I was still in my pajamas. Um, nice. Just got you remember my, it well. Just got my post. I can remember it quite well. You know, there's a couple of <laughs> couple of uh, the the more key areas that I'm a bit confused about now, and I've started to forget things. But uh, I have notes. Oh, I have notes. So first of all, I guess we ought to ask, uh, what were your first impressions of Vicky? My first impressions of Vicky were that it was a very refreshing change from Susan. I think I was pretty well sick of her by the end of the Dalek invasion of Earth. And she had mm-hmm. she had a, a final uh, exit scene about as long as David Tennant's final episode. Um, <laughs> and... Um, yeah, which and I was I was not a fan of the uh, Dalek invasion of Earth either. Uh, um, a lot of people rate that over the the, the, the Daleks, the, the first Dalek story, uh-huh. but I I prefer that over Dalek invasion of Earth. Uh, possibly a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm a very um, audio focused uh, viewer, so I like mm-hmm. what I hear as well, and. I, so, there was something about the incidental music in the Dalek Invasion of Earth that I didn't like. It was very percussive, whereas mm. the, the Daleks mm-hmm. was much more electronic, weird, uh, that I, I really enjoyed that. Well, they they reused the, um, the soundtrack from the Daleks for this serial, don't they? Yep. You stole the mouth Just right out of my words. Um, 
and yeah, so so I really I really like that, and I thought uh, Kequillian was uh, was pretty good, and the way they used that music to to sting some of his appearances on screen was uh, was pretty cool, and. Mm. I mean, it's not an overly complex story, but as a as an introduction story for the companion, which is pretty much all this was, it was it was pretty good. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this is another David Whittaker story, and I think it's very rare that, from memory, he does a, a dud episode. Um, he just seems to really understand how Doctor Who works and what works well in Doctor Who. And I think this really showcases what Maureen O'Brien can do. And also, I think William Hartnell as well. I think this is a, an early chance for him to really shine and show off some of his range too. And I think he definitely, well, from my opinion, I think he definitely seems to come across as a more likeable character. And this is the start of that, which I think just gives an extra dimension to his performance. I don't know what you think, Ian. Well, I suppose um, now that uh, Susan's gone, he's no longer in loco parentis, so he doesn't maybe feel that kind of responsibility or pressure to safeguard her from the evils of the universe, and thus he is able to kick back a little, relax, have a little sleep when the TARDIS is landing, and sort of lark about in a, in a more anarchic fashion. <laughs> I do like the, uh, the scene where he wakes up and uh, she, Barbara says, "Oh, the trembling stopped." And he said, "Oh, I'm so pleased for you." Yes, that was that, love that was nice laugh out loud. Touches. That was so good. Um, but we are getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Um, going back to Vicky, I th- and it's it's um, you got to be careful here because I don't want to be, you know, too down on Caroline Ford's portrayal of Susan because I I believe mm-hmm. she was doing exactly what was asked of her at every turn. Um, but it was grating, and after sort of ten stories, it was it was very clear that this was a, a one-note <laughs> uh, character, not necessarily a one-note performance, but it was a grating note, and it was a note that really got under everyone's skin. Um, I do feel a bit sorry for her, because it's, you know, like you say, she's only really... She can only work with what she's given. Precisely. Which um, is a shame, but... Yeah, Vicky was, from the word go... Um, Karma and you know, dialed down a notch, um, uh, less prone to shrieking panic at the drop of a hat, resourceful, strong, funny. Um, yes, uh, I spent about 10 minutes thinking, was she the one that went on to be more gained in Battlefield? And then I, I realized that was Jean Marsh. No. Um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, I liked her very much, and um. Yes, should we should we should we turn to the I right? I'll stop everyone right now. My first problem with this story is the <laughs> title of episode one. Now, do, do either of you remember what episode one is called? That'd be the powerful enemy, wouldn't it? The powerful enemy, precisely. Uh, that's six points. Now you're on. By the way, Dwayne. Um, <laughs> now, to me. The Powerful Enemy is something of a wishy-washy, lukewarm kind of episode title. Like, I don't know, The Competent Assassin, or The Robots of Tangible Irritation, or The Mild Peril of Fang Rock. Am I alone in this? I mean, (laughs) surely all the enemies so far have been pretty damn powerful. 
Uh, we haven't got to the quarks yet, but you know, that's cool. <laughs> no, but so we'll far, dry on that so one. far they've all been pretty formidable. <laughs> um, and it's just, it just felt really kind of, oh, is that is that where we've a powerful enemy? Oh dear. So uh, and the Tardis lands, and there we are in the console room with everyone. Um, Ian, I notice um, has is there a branch of Marks and Spencers in the Tardis where he gets a new suit from every week? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think uh, look, there's nothing wrong with having standards, Ian. There, We've already addressed there, this before there, in previous episodes. He, he looks he's like he's a dapper gentleman. He's not a dapper gentleman. He's the president of a lawn bowls association. <laughs> uh, I just think you're jealous. Well, that's 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 for you to think and and for me to dispute. We should probably address the. Uh, the sand beast in the room while I remember, which is Barbara. Barbara, what were you thinking? She just gets really trigger happy. She picks up a gun, goes blasting left, right and centre. Poor Sandy, the vegetarian sand beast, gets blown away. And she's like something out of a Tarantino film. It looked a lot like a vegetarian, you've got to admit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, be very careful because I'm married to a vegetarian and she could be quite lethal. <laughs> it was one of the less well realised uh, monsters in the in the canon. Um, it looked very much like a sort of bored drama student in a leotard with a <laughs> silly head. I mean, if, if I'm honest, it didn't look like a very powerful enemy. It seemed like a bit of a, a combination of a, a seal and a um, anglerfish. Don't forget, though, in about, it's in about 12 years' time, they still use something very similar in a Tom Baker story called the, the Reboss Operation. The Shrivenzal looked oh, God, yes, almost the right. same. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was similarly um, terrible, wasn't it? And I suppose <laughs> infinitely worse because they'd had sort of 12 years to think of something slightly better. Um, but yes, so... Um, so we're so we're we're sort of leaping around. Should we just sort of cherry pick bits of the story to uh, to openly mock? Well, I'm going to disappoint you here, Ian, because I I love this story. <laughs> I just think maybe it's the fact it's two episodes, so it's quite nice and easy to digest. You're not you know having to hanker down for six or seven episodes, and that's quite refreshing. Um, but I just think it really moves along at a nice pace. I think Coquillian works as a creepy villain. And I like the sort of meta nature of... Spoilers. The guy in a mask is a guy in a mask. Because by this point you're trained to sort of, perhaps with modern eyes, accept that sometimes the costuming isn't quite as amazing as you might want it to be in the 21st century so I think that works really nicely and yeah I just I love it I think it's a great intro for a new character and I think it's a highlight so far from season two did you hmm. like the three-sided TARDIS mark I must admit I didn't really pay that much attention no I didn't when they walk out of the TARDIS you can see through into the through the back there's no there's no uh-huh. Rear panel, so you can see oh what looks God. like a wall in the background. Right, take it all back. It's the worst episode ever. That's just ridiculous. 
What were they thinking? I, I, I couldn't notice... I didn't notice that, but I noticed you did see a lot more of the inside of the police box on this occasion than normal, and, and something did look mm-hmm. a bit off, so I will have to go back and look at that again. Um, I thought... I mean, so episode one, I think, was, was quite... You know, it clipped along, it, it set everything up. You had... Um, Obviously, Ian and Barbara got separated. She was casually uh, tossed off the side of a mountain by Coquillian, which I thought was a bit extreme. Um, but then she gets rescued and ends up in the ship with uh, with Vicky. Uh, and then Ian and the Doctor spend sort of... Uh, and it was amazing. It didn't feel like 25 minutes. It felt like about six hours, just kind of blundering around <laughs> in the dark with the world's biggest torch. I don't know where that came from. Um and uh, you you sort of build up to, at the end of part one, there was this fantastic cliffhanger, which I don't know if you used to watch those kind of 1940s uh, cliffhanger serials like um, King of the Rocket Man or, or Zorro's Fighting Legion. They used oh, to yeah, show they them. Great. They were brilliant. And that was it was that kind of cliffhanger. Ian is trapped between a bunch of skewers mm-hmm. with a, another four or six blades slowly advancing towards him he's going to be pushed down into the um the 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 sandy creature of limited menace uh now i have a point to raise here raise your point i must admit i've i've got to be honest this is not my own thought that struck me we covered this story on the nerdology uk podcast last year with Sucky from uh, the Progda Who podcast and Ben, who was on our show when we covered the Sensorites. And somebody brought up the fact that they make a big deal about how the people of Dido are this incredibly benevolent and peace-loving... Chilled-out bunch of dudes, basically, like yeah, a bunch yeah. of old hippies. Yeah, yeah. So when did they start installing massive blades into the wall and deadly traps for people? Well, what what I choose to read into it is that they were actually installed so that the, the sandy, rubbish creatures could shave themselves effectively without getting up. Uh, a series <laughs> of blades would emerge through the wall and they could scrape their chins on it. No, you're right. It is it is It is nonsense that they've got this sort of Indiana Jones-like chamber of a terrible peril uh, in the middle of this. And you mentioned those Republic serials, and it must be said that quite a lot of those cliffhangers, the way they're resolved, is not necessarily that impressive compared to how the how cliffhanger leaves up. you. Yes, you're. It... So poor Ian is stuck there, about to fall <laughs> off the edge of the cliff. He's in a really terrible situation. He can't escape these terrible, massive blades. And in the next episode, how does he get out of it? Well, he sort of... He sidesteps. Yeah, sw- sort of swings around just, a bit. What I thought was amazing yeah. was he's standing there and the, the blades are coming at his legs and he goes, oh, they're sharp. And the doctor says, stuff your <laughs> jacket on them. Well, that's not going to make much difference, is it, you silly old fool? <laughs> well, it's not just any old jacket. It's a Marks and Spencer's jacket. It doesn't really matter. He seems to have a new suit appear every episode, like you said. So that's, that's very <laughs> true. Pretty, I reckon, expendable. I reckon he's got a machine in the TARDIS, like, you know twat at CNA or, you know, top man or something, and it just knocks him out, some sort of git suit. 
like uh, you know they've got they've got the food machine with its three settings for fish fingers milk or tea um, and he's got a suit machine but um, yeah I, you know def- defend yourself with fabric and then sort of <laughs> climb gingerly around the side of it and you'll be completely fine again that was a, a very disappointing resolution to a genuinely I thought really good uh, cliffhanger which was very much you know reminiscent of those those 40 serials as you suggest so thinking about that cliffhanger the thing that got me was if you're going to get pushed down to that sand beast the most important thing would be to not go to the greengrocers beforehand uh, because being a vegetarian the way to escape that monster is just to be there with nothing other than yourself because it's not going to just to just to be just to be meat all. just yeah absolutely yeah, just be meat if you had yeah. If you had, say, some courgettes about your person or some cress, You're in trouble. some celery, yep. the monster would be immediately upon you, salivating. That explains why Ian wanders around with that cucumber in his pocket. Well, maybe that's why um, the Peter Davison doctor had the celery, because he was a bit more, <laughs> yeah, come on then, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Sad <laughs> Just creature. in case he happens to wind up on Dido again. Well, he's, he's obviously, you know, it's a bit of a home from home. He's been there before. Here he is turning up again. Um, yeah. So, um, Coquillian, first time I saw him, I thought it was, I thought it was Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees, just this ridiculous uh well i no, you know she's she was quite hot um but uh a very different and very individual bit of costume design there um now which is a a bit of a question for Dwayne because when obviously you're you're we kind of know you for your devotion to the the big finish audios and so forth and a lot of the fun of listening to those uh, is is doing 90% of the work yourself in terms of you're doing the design, you're doing the costume and, and so on. When when you listen to things like that, do you sort of imagine everyone is always, you know, wearing some kind of really good, sleek space costume? Or do you ever think, yeah, maybe this guy's got pointy bits sticking out of his head and a weird, like, wrench with a shiny button on it? Do you ever just let yourself go in that 60s way and just imagine any kind of nonsense goes absolutely absolutely because when they do recreate 60s style adventures for big finish well they they always do have a cover art as well so which helps you helps send you in the right direction but sure yeah absolutely i do good man good man (laughs) i i would I, i i don't I haven't got that kind of money. Um, so the first time we meet Bennett uh, in the spaceship, which Mark, uh, you were you were mm. saying you thought the spaceship looked good. I thought it was really well realised. I think the interior looked excellent. Yeah, well, that's Ray Cusick again. Ah, oh, is it? He always a little. I tinker, think he and Barry Newbury really, when you consider the budget they had, I thought they both did a really great job for the serials those early I mean the interior I think was was far better than it really needed to be um it was a lot more detail um than the camera would ever really have picked up on so I I wholeheartedly agree with you the outside I thought was a bit ropey and looked like a sort of model on the wrong side of the studio but uh, I could be wrong 
I think Ray Cusick in one of the interviews on the DVD, he was saying how um, Shawcraft, who would make their models at that time, were great at following instructions to the letter, but they weren't so good at sort of using their imagination to realise things. So he had to supply two drawings of the rocket, one of it in pristine condition in flight and another one of it in a sort of, you know, crashed state yeah. so that they could realise it. I thought, you know, for the budget of Tuppence Hapney, I thought it looked pretty damn good. But maybe I'm alone on that. The satellite dish was cool. It reminded me of my, my Lego yeah. days. <laughs> it probably was made from Lego, but, you know. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so so inside the uh, inside the spaceship, if you will, um, the first time we meet Bennett, um, he came across as a very shifty man who was possibly hiding some sort of big secret. And I don't know if they were meant to sort of telegraph that quite so early on, but it was sort of achingly apparent what what was you know what the deal was from the first time he sort of raised that eyebrow and did that weird thing with I his eye. I think you're being very unfair, Ian. Do you think I am? I think he was just a very private person. He liked to spend some alone time with his very high-quality hi-fi equipment. Well, you, I can't argue with that. I've spent the entire day listening to uh, The Best of Suede on my new headphones. Oh, the bass. Oh, oh very the nice. drums. Oh, Oh, it's marvellous. But yeah, you know, he just very instantly had this aura of um, I am, I'm a bad man and I'm up to no good. I think you're being a bit judgy there, Ian. Well, that's not like I think you're judging people on their appearances and I like to try and rise above that kind of narrow-minded thinking. Mm, Or maybe I'm just a bit of a div. (laughs) (laughs) Is that how you view all Australians, Ian? Oh, well, as as sort of immediately shifty types. and shifty. Um, no, yeah, I was yeah. I was brought up on on neighbours where Australians seemed like a very lovely bunch of uh, very kind, relaxed, um, and very nice people. Apart from Paul Robinson, who was just obsessed with getting money out of Mister Udagawa. Yeah. No, this guy really reminded wow. me of who's the chap in um, Death to the Daleks who. You, I, th- I, I honestly can't remember his name now. But you think he's going to be a, a bad guy, but ultimately he's the hero. He just had a, a the Scottish fella. He just had a, a little sort of hul- hunched kind of powerful strength, which you maybe interpret as menacing when it isn't, or all the other way around. In in this case, I'm trying to think who you mean now from Death of the Daleks. Did you, did you mean the the Scottish fella, or did you mean the little alien Bilal? No, no, he was lovely. Oh, I totally have a man crush on him. Um, no, the um, <laughs> the little guy with the stubble, who I think, I want to say he blew up the saucer at the end with all the Daleks on it. Yeah, he had a Scottish accent. So, in other words, anyone who's not English is a bit shifty to right. me. That's, that's, <laughs> r- right, okay, I'm going to reach uh-huh, around I'm going to be in so much trouble I'm going to reach around for something to try and counter this with um, <laughs> because I know I know that you you associate all all British people with Brexit and racism but that's not the case some of us are <laughs> some of us are nice um, I just can't back that up with any facts no I think um, I think all Australians apart from him are not murderers apart from obviously you know statistically some of them will be but 
that's um, that's that's just science. Well, you might be surprised because uh, being from Tasmania, you know that's where all the English sent their convicts is to to my right. home state, Ooh, Tasmania. Right. So we could well be murderers, um, but we're I mean we're nice we're nice these days. But I have to bring nice it up because murderers. we have to be we have to be hypersensitive about these things these days, isn't it? Isn't that fashionable at the moment? Absolutely. Hypersensitive I about mean, the, yeah yeah. <laughs> absolutely, the whole world is kind of falling apart on a on a. <laughs> on a knife edge at the moment, seems to me. But hey, let's not get political, um, <laughs> because my my dad will get cross. He always gets cross with me because I just keep ranting about Brexit the whole time. Um, anyway, one thing that that did strike me, um, and I, I realise this is just because it, it was it was broadcast, you know, sixty years ago. But when mm-hmm. Ian and Barbara are gossiping outside the TARDIS and Ian says he thinks the doctor's getting a bit mmm. And I think he means old and possibly shaky and infirm. But he does this little yeah. weird hand gesture that that nowadays you think is someone doing cerebral palsy like Donald Trump did it. Um, did anyone oh. else bump on that? I actually did. I did pick up on oh. that, but I didn't think cerebral palsy. I just thought, uh, you know, maybe a little bit crazy. Something like that, which is still something right, I think that right. would be frowned upon these days. I don't think he, I don't think they get away with that these days. Absolutely not, and they mm. wouldn't do it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't perform it in that way. But that was the that's that's the kind of gesture when I you know when I was in the primary school that was that was the impression that the bad kids would do. Um, which I just I just thought well that's a little bit unfortunate, but um, but yeah, it's a it's a minor quibble. Um, another thing that I absolutely loved was in, in part two where the doctor pops through to Bennett's room to have a little chat with him and mm-hmm. uh, he opens the door and says Mm-mm, can I mm, come in Mm-mm. and Bennett says you can't come in and the doctor's immediate reaction is to look around for a battering ram <laughs> and then yeah. start smashing his way <laughs> what if Bennett was just having a poo right and the doctor's smashing down his walls, <laughs> trying to get in and uh, what's going on? Where did uh, what? What did we make of that? In the next scene, uh, Vicky, uh, the shot goes to Vicky, and you can still hear the doctor in the background bashing on the wall. It's like and Vicky's not reacting. It's like that's normal. That's what everyone does when they can't get into a room. But you go always, and get a battery ram and knock the in door his down, room whacking off something, <laughs> <laughs> banging away. <laughs> Oh dear! I just thought that oh, was now. There's an image I didn't want. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Overreaction to someone <laughs> saying you can't come in. If I'm, you know, with with the with the COVID queuing system, if I go to the pub and they're like, "Well, you can't come in just yet. We have to wait for a, a spare table." I don't immediately reach for a length of wood and start smashing the door down. Often, no. You sanitise first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think this story gives William Hartnell the chance to be properly badass. That scene, I know we're kind of skipping around a lot, but the scene where he confronts Coquillian at the end and he's in that quite atmospherically lit hall. Yeah. And he doesn't even turn to face him. He's just stood there looking like he's like a badass Time Lord who's going to tear him a new one. 
I think that's brilliant. I, I just think Hartnell was so good in this episode. Yeah, he is he absolutely amazing. That's probably one of the standout parts for me uh, in that one. I still remember that from the first mm-hmm. time I saw it. And yeah, you're right. He's he just he just owns that scene. They're two really good actors too. Like Ray Barrett was a good good character actor, and um, mm. they're they're both sort of really performing their socks off. They're both taking it seriously, and uh, it comes across really well. Yeah, I, when you see the Doctor standing there, sort of in that, as you say, in that quite dramatic lighting, and he doesn't turn around, um, that I I don't think you see the Doctor sort of often that kind of calm and poised and you know he's in charge and he knows what's happening it's a very seventh doctor thing and you don't see the doctor behave like that again i think until you mm. know 25 years later or see, whatever. i could see tom baker behaving like that well he'd sort of maybe that's just my bias he'd, he'd, era. he'd turn around and, and sort of boggle his eyes a little bit at coquillian and go what a ghastly individual you are or something like that <laughs> But yeah, it was it was wonderful, wasn't it? It was it was you could almost have the the music from the one of the one of the Batman films just kind of gently scoring that as Hartnell <laughs> stands there looking all kick-ass. That was great. Oh, now see, I thought you were I thought you were going for the whole uh, Adam West vibe with Zap and Pow oh, as they start no, no. having a go at each other with swords and all oh, sorts. Oh, let's let's not dwell for too long on the uh, so-called fight scene because obviously the. You know, I, I do we know roughly how old um, Coquillian that that actor would have been? Because obviously uh, Hartnell would have been what late fifties, so it was never going to be two young men wrestling on the floor like Chesterton and that guy in that other story. I thought it had enough drama going on there, and then those creepy guys turn up in their tracksuits. That's right, I, and I don't know where they came from, but by that point, I, I I wasn't really in any fit state to to pass sober judgment on anything. Um, I got one other thing that we've skipped over is um, when uh, sort of early on in part two, where they're sort of in the spaceship discussing the 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 plot. Um, they talk about Coquillian, and Ian calls him cocky licking. Now, was that? <laughs> Was that a little bit of Ian's sort of secret subtextual life coming out there, or or, or what? I'm not commenting on that. I think that's that. what's known as transference. <laughs> um, okay, and then and then I suppose we have to come to the elephant in the room, which is Bennett's plan doesn't really stand up to a moment's scrutiny, does it? It is a bit... I mean, it's established quite early on that there's only one way in and out of his quarters. And at one point, Coquillian goes in to speak to him and then uh, he comes out saying, oh, Coquillian's gone. So you're thinking, okay. And, and she doesn't... Unless that's meant to be a pointer to to 1960s viewers that all is not what it seems. I don't know. Well, Maybe I mean, I'm, it's a... It, uh, it that that would only they would only have sold that if sort of Vicky then sort of turned to camera and looked a bit confused and said, "But he didn't come out." You know, it just it just felt really clumsy. And mm. what he's going to spend the rest of his life is he sort of pretending to be in bed? It's very Scooby Doo. Yeah, just dr- put, popping on his his big flowing robes like he's I don't know Elton John or something. Or share, and then. Well, I think his plan is once they get rescued, he'll just bugger off as soon as they land back on Earth again. 
It just seems a very... With the, the alibi that uh, this Kukillian character had killed everyone. I think what worked really well, um, despite the flimsy uh, storyline around Kukillian, was the psychological aspect that he was using uh, against Vicky. She was, she'd was she already lost her mother, mm-hmm. so she was on yeah. this voyage with, with her dad, so she'd lost her dad as well, and you could sort of see throughout her performance that she was she was drawing on that sort of quiet desperation of of being mm-hmm. being an orphan you know she she was uh, and i think bennett was using that if i if i want to delve into the story he was using that quite well so because she was so psychologically affected by becoming an orphan losing a mum and dad being very young then she would quite easily uh, be manipulated by a plan as potentially as silly as as uh, what we're talking about here with Coquillian. So, but I think that came out really nicely in the performance. I don't know what you guys think about that. I personally, I totally agree. I think she's a really sympathetic character. I think when you get the revelation at the end, I didn't end up thinking, oh God, well, she must have been some sort of idiot. I just felt so sorry for her because she'd been through this terrible trauma and she really does get the chance. I'm sure Caroline Ford must have been sitting watching it thinking, why didn't I get a script like this? And she just gets to go through all those, that sort of gamut of emotions. And I just think it's that, a really good That's a very good point. Introduction she, in, in two episodes, in 50 minutes of screen time, she was given more to do as an actress than Caroline Ford was in a year. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame for Ms. Ford. Yeah. But um, but but no, you're right. Psychologically, if you can get past the obvious sort of logical flaws in the uh, in 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 uh, Bennett's plan, then yes, as a as a psychological depiction of I guess Stockholm syndrome, where she's kind of you know she she doesn't necessarily know that he's the kidnapper or the baddie, but he's she becomes dependent on him and thus. He's able to manipulate her, and that was, on some level, that was quite quite nicely done. So there was some really nice interaction between the, the main cast, except for Ian. He was the only one that didn't really interact with Vicky at all. So there was a beautiful scene between Vicky and Barbara when um, Barbara was forgiven for for killing Sandy. Um, I thought that was really mm-hmm. nicely done. That was beautiful. We've also got the the scene where the Doctor looks at Barbara and Ian, sends them out the door, and then he sort of beckons Vicky over and sits her down. Says, you didn't really mean that, did you? Did you? You know, it's really, really nicely done. And I, and, and you're absolutely right. It really shows off that caring side to yeah, his personality, doesn't it? I do feel sorry for, for Caroline Ford. There was an opportunity probably in Edge of Destruction because they they was just all set inside the TARDIS there where they could have uh, dwelt on Susan a bit more and drawn Susan as -hmm. a character out a bit more but um, that kind of opportunity was lost but I thought it was really done nicely in this so the the beautiful beautiful moments between Barbara and and the Doctor really uh, stood out to me Do we think maybe because they'd already you know, fumbled the ball with Susan in Edge of Destruction, which I agree with you was the perfect opportunity to expand her character. Maybe that's what made it work this time around. They knew where they'd gone wrong 
with the last character and they set this one up uh, from the word go to be a much more um, rounded and I don't want to say likeable but do you know what I mean sort of less <laughs> less grating kind of performance you, you know Maureen O'Brien was putting her foot down right from the start of her time in Doctor Who because they wanted her to dye her hair black to be more like Susan to start with and she refused oh, yeah. So maybe Maureen O'Brien was um, was really putting her foot down right from the start and that making making sure that um, she was having much more to say about her character and, and where it was going. I think Caroline Ford visited her on set during the, the rescue as well. Um, yeah, that's so they right. would have that, no doubt Caroline and uh, Maureen would have chatted about the limitations of mm-hmm. that particular role and, um, I, I'm sure Maureen would have had a plan in place to to kind of counter that, and Carol Ann probably had suggestions. Yeah, because this on was her first could... TV, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So she'd been part of the Everyman Theatre group up in Liverpool, and this was her first big break in television. And you're right; they said to her, "We just we were thinking maybe you should cut your hair shorter and dye it black." And she said, "Well, why don't you just get Carol Ann Ford back?" <laughs> Which <laughs> Considering you know she was pretty new to TV, I think that was pretty very good of her to stand up for herself like that. Because I imagine they probably just assumed she'd just you know roll over and say, "Well, yeah, sure, whatever." But um, no, I think uh, yeah, I instantly I just find her so much more relatable. I suppose it's because of the the fact that Susan is this weird sort of alien creature that just screeches grandfather repeatedly and (laughs) and twists her ankle on a semi-regular basis you know it's hard really kind of i think her absolute peak of my interest in the character was marco polo which sadly we don't really get to see her performance we can only really hear it and see the the photos but i think she's great in that but yeah, unfortunately, um, she didn't really get a, a fair rub of the green, whereas I think Maureen O'Brien, like you say, I think they perhaps learned some of those mistakes and and tried to come up with a, a different take on that character. My peak of interest in, in the character of Susan was probably in the very first episode of Unearthly Child. The stage was set for a, a <laughs> wow. really... Yeah, but the stage was set for a really interesting character... Uh, who and mm-hmm. it was genuinely an unearthly child. It, that's what it was called, and uh, there were so many possibilities yeah. sketched out there in the opening episode to explore. Uh, it was touched on briefly in the sensorites with the telepathic abilities and stuff like that. The, the, mm-hmm. There was so much more potential, and we just got this really two-dimensional character in the end. I'm not surprised she wanted to leave, um, and uh, I'm very happy that Maureen O'Brien sort of rose above that as much as she could uh, in those circumstances so yeah interesting that um down the down the track speaking of the name vicky um when sarah jane Mm -hmm. came out of the tardis in pyramids of mars or came out of the dressing room in pyramids of mars dressed in that long white dress the doctor called her vicky and i remember thinking i remember thinking that's not the the doctor never called victoria vicky because um, he was referring no. to Victoria at the time, so mm. interesting mm-hmm. that we've had two characters with uh, with similar names. But um, yeah, 
in pyramids of Mars, I got mixed up. But that's a very uh, delving into the minutiae of a, of a fan's uh, twisted mind that has nothing better to think about than these things. So sorry about that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's well, what we do. Company, yeah. <laughs> I think we ought to rate this and then maybe go to some listener feedback. So marks out of ten. I am going to come to Dwayne first. What are you going to rate this one? Uh, I'm a huge William Hartnell fan. I always rated him as as uh, one of my favourite doctors, if not my favourite. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is a really, really good example uh, of William Hartnell at uh, coming towards his best uh, in his role as the Doctor. So I'll give this a, an eight out of ten. It's a solid score, Ian. So, and I hear what you're saying, Dwayne. It's it's the start of Hartnell warming up and becoming more of a, an impish kind of magical figure. It's a it's a little kind of flimsy two part story that doesn't make a lot. It doesn't really stack up. Um, it's kind of flimsy. It's got a great cliffhanger that's poorly realised. Ian's at tosser factor five in this but you <laughs> i just can't mark it down because uh you know because of its its many many good points and and mainly it's the introduction of vicky so i i can't give it any lower than an eight either good good i was worried there for a moment you were really <laughs> gonna mark it down uh i just love this story i think it's so entertaining it doesn't outstay its welcome it's a nice short compact piece and it shows off just how good Hartnell can be and for that reason I am going to give it a 9 so that's what we thought but how about what you guys thought let's go to some listener feedback I've got mail hi this is Mark from the future yeah I know a bit wibbly wobbly isn't it We've had some audio feedback from Ben in Indiana, so I'm going to drop it in here. Everything I have to say about this story, The Rescue, can be found on episode number 37 of the Nerdology UK podcast. A great way to spend an afternoon. And now back to where we were. So we've heard from uh, literally all four corners of Twitter. Uh, Firstly, our dear friends at the Crinoid podcast have, have said... Uh, the rescue is a little gem. I didn't see the reveal coming on first watch. Oh, please. Coquillion is a great design. <laughs> oh, come, come. And Vicky... No, he's right. He's great. No. And Vicky is a breath of fresh air after the overwrought Susan, ensuring that the first change Correct. of personnel is a great success. Well, thank you, uh, Jim. Um, and that is pretty much, again, exactly what we said, but but distilled into... 140 characters, <laughs> making us rather redundant. Uh, Hamfisted Batvender, <laughs> our dear friend Hamfisted Batvender, said uh, of the rescue, he forever associated it with its UK gold screening, an economical little drama that never wastes a word. That final confrontation is a masterclass in lighting and a set design that belies the meagre budget. Wonderful. You can't really yeah. argue with that. Um, with you 100% there. Next, we've heard from uh, our friend Hayden Gribble uh, of the... Um, I get confused now because everyone's in a podcast. He's in the... Diddly he's in the, oh, Of course he's diddly dumb. I knew that. 
Ah, oh, <laughs> sorry, Hayden. Um, uh, he says, uh, a nice breather after the Dalek invasion of Earth and a softer Hartnell starts to come to the fore. So again, yep, brilliantly well-observed, pithy mm-hmm. and wonderful. And then finally we got some some chancer called the Sirens of Audio has tweeted in. Oh. Uh, so what this says. A true classic. The cast are wonderful. Hartnell is in fine form. O'Brien takes on the role of new companion with ease. That's a very good point. There are some beautiful shots and angles and a genuine twist. An easy and enjoyable watch. I think that's the... I th- yeah, I absolutely take my hat off to whoever, whatever genius came up with that. I couldn't have put it better myself. That was Philip. <laughs> <laughs> that was Philip, my co-host. <laughs> hey, Philip. Okay, I've heard from the City of Jeff uh, on Twitter, at City of Jeff. And he says, my time has come. Ha ha. My favourite Hartnell story for so many reasons. From the early scenes of the Doctor's apparent depression having left Susan behind, sleeping through the TARDIS landing, referring to her, and drifting off into awkward, embarrassed silence, to him absolutely becoming the hero of his own show in that atmospheric and beautifully directed final confrontation. Hartnell never misses a beat with this one. The introduction of Vicky, whose chemistry with the Doctor is immediately apparent, and out Susan, Susan. There's something about a David Whittaker script that, for me at least, just absolutely captures the core elements and essence of what Doctor Who is and should be, and The Rescue is the perfect example of that. Oh, and reusing Carey's score from the Daleks is always a good idea. Thank you for that, Jeff. And uh, Dwayne, I believe you've got some feedback too. Now... Considering our earlier discussion, I'm starting to get a little bit paranoid now because I know most of these comments are non-English people. So, um, (laughs) starting off with Nathan Bottomley from Flight Through Entirety, he says, It's tremendous. The monster turns out to be a man in a rubber suit. To which, all of time (laughs) and space replies, spoilers. To which, Nathan Bottomley replies, Imagine Mm. Warriors of the Deep with the same twist ending. And then an impersonation from all of Time and Space podcast. And you've misquoted Warriors of the Deep here. If only there could have been another way. And I'm sorry, but it's there should have been another way. Ah, well. I'm sure. All right. From Gallifrey's Most Wanted, uh, we have Amazing, a perfect introduction to a new companion. Such a simple story. Makes me wish there were more good two-parters in the original run of the show. Uh, the regular cast is in there. Well, it says Grove, so I thought he might have been referring to Keeper of Traken, but it's, I'm sure he means Groove. <laughs> uh, Vicky and Maureen O'Brien is love, a lovely addition to the show. Now, Andy Moore, uh, I, I'm not sure where Andy's from, but it could be, could be English. So he says, mm-hmm. the cast are marvellous in this, none more so than Hartnell, who really shines here. A great little story. And David Kitchen from the Doctor Who show says, A personal favourite of mine, a wonderful character piece where Hartnell gets to show all his talent, funny, kind and especially strong in his confrontation with Bennett. Vicky is a wonderful character who gets the luxury of a perfect introduction all about her. Very well put. Excellent. Thank you all so much for your feedback. And if you want to get in touch, we'll be listing all the various ways over our end credits. 
So it just leaves us to thank Dwayne so much for coming on. Thank you, Dwayne. Do you want to give your show a quick plug before we uh, have to go? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, you can catch the Sirens of Audio at sirensofaudio.com. That's our website. And if you just do a search mm-hmm. on any of your podcast catches, um, you'll find us there. We're At the moment, we're coming out four times a month. So it's keeping me quite quite busy i might take a break over uh december january uh for a few weeks but we'll see how we go but uh yeah quite quite a lot coming out at the moment yeah not wishing to make you too big-headed here Dwayne, but it is quality as well as quantity you had some great episodes out some really interesting interviews as well yeah thanks yeah it's been it's been really fun and surprising the um the 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 uh, people we've been talking to so it's uh, it's been thrilling actually yeah excellent uh, i'll put some links in the show notes so that uh, if anyone's interested in checking it out they'll just be able to click on it and uh, and get over to your website and listen so thanks again for coming on and being our guest so until next time we'll just leave you teetering on a cliff edge until we come back to talk about the romans ah! <laughs> If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at mailbagofrassalon at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Time and Space Pod, and you can also find us on Facebook. If you want to leave some audio feedback, there is a link in the show notes. You can use your phone or your computer and leave up to 60 seconds of feedback. Or if you're listening via the Anchor website, you can click on the message button and leave your audio. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you to Momo Tempo for providing our theme music. <laughs>